This evening we turn to the book of Job, chapter 2, reading the entirety of that chapter. Job 2, the whole chapter. God's holy and inspired word, give your attention to the reading of it, Job 2. God's word. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will pay for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, He's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to you, her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zohar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. As far as the reading of God's word may bless it to us. So how you doing? What's up? How's it going? So, as you know, these are the greetings we give and receive pretty much every day and double on Sunday. Just the polite way we say hello. And we often ask and answer these questions with little thought. Fine. Well, how are you? The truth is, typically, we are not interested in getting a full answer. We're too busy to tell others how we real feel and to hear their whole story. How you doing is just a nice hello. No need to get too serious about it. But then there are those times and you cannot escape the awkward tension of this question. This is particularly when you say it to someone who's just experienced a tragedy. Instinctually, how are you slips out and, and you think, oh no, she just lost her mom. You feel stupid. And if you're the one suffering, it can sometimes be worse. You do feel terrible, but 
You don't want to talk about it with everyone who asks how you are doing, and it annoys you that people will tiptoe around you with their greetings. At times, how are you can be the worst question. And yet, despite all its awkwardness and insensitivity, a key theme in this biblical book is asking Job, how are you doing? So the most horrendous day just pounced on Job like a hungry predator. In a matter of hours, his herds were raided, his flock was burned up, servants were slaughtered by the hundreds, and like an ice pick to the temple, his ten beloved sons and daughters were crushed. The millionaire with a perfect life has been broken into destitution and childlessness. Somehow, though, even after being trampled by death and poverty, Job still blesses and worships the Lord. He mourns on the ground and he laments before his maker. Yet as Job sits in his shaved sadness, another day dawns in heaven. One day in the divine court of the Most High, the sons of God were presenting themselves. Here we actually find a mere image of the scene in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. The angels are before God and Satan is with them. And the Lord takes the initiative to acquire after Satan's business and he repeats his worldwide surveillance program. One world under Satan's CCTV. And Yahweh again does a little bragging on Job. He is the one and only, the best and most pious. Job is incomparable in uprightness and blameless uh, blamelessness. Job is the servant of the Lord, and the Lord is proud to be the God of Job. Then Yahweh adds some new material. Job still keeps his integrity. He did not deny the Lord or revile his name, but Job remains sound and stable in his purity and uprightness. He hasn't wavered the slightest from his sincere fear and love of the Lord. Of course, this is the Lord claiming his win. Satan challenged Yahweh to a game, a contest, an ordeal, and Job was the playing field. Satan wagered that Job loved God only for his money and blessings. Remove his wealth and family, and Job would disown and curse the Lord to his face. Job, though, had not cursed the Lord, but blessed his name even amid his terrible sufferings. Job humbled himself before the Lord, and so Yahweh bested the evil one. Therefore, the Lord appropriates Job in this affliction, and he declares victory over Satan. And in the next line, the Lord adds some particularly significant information. He says, you, to the Satan, incited me against him to swallow him, literally, without reason. Now, this incitement is Satan's challenge uh, and duel with God. Yet the stress falls on the purpose to swallow for no reason or for nothing, Now, this without reason or for nothing is pulled from Satan's remark in chapter 1, verse 9. There he disputed that Job did not fear God for nothing. That is, Job feared Yahweh only for his rich blessings. Satan lied that Job did not fear God for nothing. Well, Yahweh flips this word back on Satan. He says he sought to destroy Job for nothing, 
for no reason. And this divine assessment is noteworthy, for this colors all of Job's suffering and loss for no reason. Satan did it for just for for just because he wanted to. And this word of God should be carefully tucked away in our memory chest to be pulled out later in the book. For as you know, there will be much debate on the reason for Job's tribulations. And each character will assume that there must be a purpose. Good, bad, or otherwise, there has to be a reason. But here, up front, the Lord discloses that Satan had no reason. Job suffered for nothing, and yet he still held unwaveringly on to his integrity or to, with the Lord. As you can guess, though, Satan is not going to take his defeat lying down. The evil one is the poorest loser. Thus he quips back. In fact, Satan starts to trash talk like a hockey player on the ice. He slings at the Holy One skin for skin. Now, this idiom is a bit obscure, but most likely it comes from the realm of bartering in the marketplace. Skin for skin, or cowhide for cowhide, is the safest and no-profit transaction. It's an equal trade. I give you my leather, you give me yours. Thus, the next line teases this out. All a person has... He will pay for, will pay for his life. That is to give all your wealth to save your life. Everyone will do this. It's a skin for skin trade, safe equivalent and lowest risk. And by this, Satan lobs two charges against God and Job. First, he prosecutes the Lord as a coward and cheater. He's a custer. Yahweh made the safest bet to ensure his win. Anybody will give up their wealth for their life. Hence, Satan accuses Yahweh that he has no real confidence in Job. His bragging in Job was hollow and false, for he merely made an equal trade. The Lord rigged the ordeal so that he would win. He's a cheater and a coward, and he, uh, as he only allowed Job a skin-for-skin trade, which anyone would do. Second, this trash talk also tarnishes Job as it paints his loss as no big deal. His kids were merely a skin-for-skin, an easy trade. He didn't really love them. They were just a cheap price to pay for his own safety. Job, all your kids are dead. Oh, well, at least I'm fine. Satan labels Job's fatherly love as false and colors him as pure selfish. His family and wealth were merely an insurance policy for Job's personal safety. Therefore, Satan reviles both God and Job as having no integrity. They lie, cheat, and protect number one. And so Satan slings another contest at the Lord. Touch his flesh and bone, and then, Job, 
will curse God's face. The evil one makes two word plays here. One is playing off a skin. You touched his skin, a slight flesh wound. But I will, I challenge you to touch his bone and flesh, a deep, life-threatening injury to his very vitality. Second, flesh and bone is the biblical idiom for family. Your kids and siblings are your bones and flesh. But Job's family has already been smacked with death. To use flesh and bone for Job's body and health further denigrates Job as caring nothing for his children. Job didn't love his boys and girls, but only himself. Clearly, the ancient serpent has a forked tongue, but it is silver. His words are smooth, but they're pure poison. Nevertheless, the Lord accepts the second ordeal of Satan. Job is in your hands. Only keep his life. You can harm him all you want, but you cannot kill him. The Lord restricts the playing field to life. Death is out of bounds. Killing is a foul ball. And with the competition set, Satan goes forth to strike Job with evil boils from foot to head. There's not a square inch that is not festering in pain and discomfort. Now, we are not able to medically diagnose Job's precise ailment. All we know is they are sores that swell, pop, and run with pus. And this is no minor skin rash. Later on in the book, Job describes in more details his symptoms, and they include cracked skin, worms in his sores, insomnia, night terrors, vision problems, emaciation, bad breath, foul body order, digestive irritation, major IBS, burning in his bones, and depression. Simply put, Job is drenched in misery and he can find no relief. Yet there is another torment to his pain. There are two textual allusions in this verse. Job's boils, for Job's boils are the same as what the Lord inflicted on Egypt in the plagues, a judgment for sin, and his disease resembles identically the curse found in Deuteronomy 28, verse 35. This means that this is the camouflage of Satan. He makes the disease resemble a curse for sin. Satan designs his attack to as if Job is guilty and God is the punisher. We just heard that Satan hounds Job for no reason, but he hides his nothing violence behind the retribution principle. He wants Job and everyone who looks at him to read this providence through the retribution principle. And in this way, Satan tries to control the answer to a binary, an either-or. Either Job is a sinner, and he's being punished, or Job is upright, and God is unjust in punishing him. 
Both answers are wrong. Both tarnish the truth. Both revile the Lord and his beloved servant Job. Thus Satan does what he just falsely accused God of. He rigs the game to try to secure his victory. And Satan's schemes work, at least initially. For Job ends up sitting, or better dwelling, on the ash heap. And the ash dump isn't so much the place of mourning, but it's the location of the socially outcast. It's the landfill where all the decent people chase away those who are despicable, cursed, and taboo. On the ashes, Job has been banished from society as a reject, unwanted, despicable. This also comes out as he scrapes himself with a broken piece of pottery. Now, we're not sure if Job uses this shard to itch or to tend to his boils. Yet the point is that the pottery provides some bit of relief. And this piece of trash, this piece of trash means that this is the only medical treatment Job can afford. Back in the day, they had medical cares and therapies, salves, ointments, drugs, wine, and so on. But Job is so poor, he can afford none of these. And he's so despised, no medical charity is extended to him. The Red Cross won't even give him aid. Banished and in agony, his only friend is a shard of clay dug out of the dumpster that he lives inside of. And all this hostility, jabbing or stabbing Job, even comes home to roost. Death claimed every person close to Job, save one, his wife. Somehow she survived. Why would Satan spare his bride? Well, to use her against him. Thus Job's unnamed wife enters the scene to take a whack at him. And interestingly, she has no words of her own, but she parrots others. First, she repeats the Lord's approbation of Job he still holds on to his integrity. Though she does change the punctuation from a period to a question mark. She turns God's compliment into a rebuking question. Why do you still have your integrity? What's the point? Now you're just being stubborn, Job, as your integrity is worthless, pointless, foolish. What God and Job value as most precious, pious integrity, she assesses as a waste of time. Her value system matches that of the evil one. And so secondly, she parrots uh, Satan, curse God and die. She channels the words of the serpent. She's playing on his team. For one, she tells him to curse God, to reveal God as unjust, to use the retribution principle against the Holy Lord. This is to rebel against Yahweh by Job flaunting that he is right over against the Lord. 
Two, she calls him to die, either to give up or to actively commit suicide. We can't exactly tell, but she says, just die and end the suffering. Yet remember, the Lord prohibited death. It was out of bounds in foul ball territory. Through her, Satan is further attempting to cheat. If Job kills himself, the wind goes to the evil one. And to hear this from your wife, this is a double-barrel, 12-gauge blast. What man can resist his wife? Well, Job does. He corrects her. Honey, you speak like a foolish, villainous lady. We cannot accept good from God and not evil. Job remains unmoved from the sovereignty of God. Fearing God means that he knows best and he is free to deal out weal and woe, good and bad, life and death. To submit to God is to submit to his whole plan. You cannot pick and choose. Yet, the most noteworthy thing about Job's response to his wife is his tone. He's gentle with her. He doesn't lamb-blast her as pure evil. He doesn't condemn her entire character or personality. Rather, he only chides her statement. And we should treat his wife as does Job. That is, we should not assume that she was a horrible woman, a wretched human. No, the text does not allow us to go there. Instead, from the overwhelming virtue of Job, we should expect that his wife would match him. She was likely very pious, God-fearing, and wise. The point is not that she was terrible, But it is that even the best women and men can go wrong in the moment. She, too, felt the loss of her kids. She was in agony watching her beloved husband suffer so deeply. This upright woman was choking in pain, and in her time of weakness, Satan used her to spout his poison. It's the same for us. We can be quite decent, but we are not immune to moments of folly, to evil ideas, to horrible statements. Hence, Job is gracious and tender to his wife, even as she acts the mouthpiece of Satan. Indeed, the takeaway is to highlight the surpassing godliness of Job. Even the best women can stumble like Job's wife, but Job doesn't. He corrects her lovingly, and he is praised as being without sin. And all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, this mention of lips is not meant to contrast with his heart. This does not mean he had sinful thoughts but was blameless with his words. No, the sincerity and integrity of Job is blameless. Out of the mouth comes the issues of the heart. Rather, this matches the contest of cursing God. He remained blameless with his lips means he did not curse God with mouth or heart. 
But after the trip up with his wife, we have three new characters that enter our story. Job had three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Now, we're not sure where they come from, but they seem to be prominent men of class and renown. And they're good friends. They hear all the evil that came on Job, and they don't banish him or cut him off like the rest of his community did. Instead, they agree to come together and to go console and comfort Job. This is outstanding. Everyone else had abandoned Job, exiling him to the ash heap, but these three friends are those who are closer than a brother. They will travel far to show sympathy and concern for Job. And sure enough, they do this well. They see Job at a distance, and he's so disfigured and dirty, they can hardly recognize him. Then they fully identify themselves with Job's pain as they ritually tear their robes, put dust on their heads, and sit on the ground for seven days. A week was the customary time for mourning, and the dust, the tearing, and sitting is them entering his pain. This says Job's sadness is ours. We feel with him and for him. This is a way of taking a bit of agony off of Job to put it on themselves. This is excellent friendship. Indeed, later on, we will see how the friends flub up big time. But we should not use their future mess-ups to denigrate their present character. Like Job's wife, the theme is not bad friends acting poorly, but it is superb friends falling into folly. In fact, the three show their mettle here by not saying a word. They see how Job's pain is, how great it is, and no one says a word for seven days. The friends are wise enough not to ask, how you are you doing? They practice the first principle of comfort therapy, silence. Among other things, one of the disciplines we will be trained in in the book of Job is mourning and comforting. How do you mourn? How do you console the lamenting? We will learn a lot, but this is the, this is the lesson number one, silence. As you approach one who is suffering, just be silent. Don't say anything. And how different this is from our day. Today, some tragedy or loss happens, and in milliseconds, everyone's talking up a storm. A person is in pain, and everyone talks but that person. Outsiders pontificate about causes, guilt, how you should feel, why you should feel better, or the meaning of the tragedy. Today, mourners are met with nothing but an avalanche of talking. But Job's friends are wiser and more comforting as they are quiet. In silence, they just sit calmly in his presence. They honor Job and his pain by knowing to shut up, just be present 
and be quiet. Oh, how we need the wisdom of Job's friends here. There is a time for talking, and we will hear lots of it in Job. But as a priority, just be silent. And so closes the second scene in the book. Socially exiled to live in the dumpster of ashes, physically tormented by sores and boils, and the only medicine being a shard of pottery. Job is disfigured by disease and dirt. And in silence, as if they were tombstones in a graveyard, the four men just sit in the grind. This is a profound window into the suffering of a servant of God. In fact, this being unrecognizable is an echo or an allusion to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Job is a suffering servant of the Lord who prefigures the suffering servant, Jesus. Thus, through Job's agony, we learn about the pain of our Savior for us. As Job lost his family, so Jesus was rejected by those closest to him. Physical pain that consumed one's every waking and sleeping minute. This is what our Lord felt on his way to the cross. Whipped to the bone, stabbed with crown of thorns, feet nailed to the cross. From head to toe, trauma and misery stung Jesus to his very core. Indeed, the cross of Golgotha was the same place as the ash dump. Vinegar seared his dry throat. The world rejected our Savior as a piece of human trash. And yet where Job did not choose his suffering, Jesus did. He willingly suffered his agony to love you and to save you. Similarly, from one angle, like Job, Jesus' suffering was for nothing. Satan attacked Jesus for no good reason, just for the heck of it. And yet, as here, Satan disguised his evil violence behind the retribution principle. That is, he wanted Job's sufferings to be read either as Job sinned or God was unjust. It's one or the other. Likewise, on the cross, the bystanders mocked Jesus as the Messiah. There's no way the Messiah could be crucified. Crucifixion can only mean Jesus was a wicked sinner. Or today, the world reviles the cross as child abuse. For the father to kill the son can only mean an evil father. Satan cast the cross as either Jesus is a sinner or God is unjust. From this narrow view of the retribution principle, Jesus suffered for no reason. Because he was ideally righteous and the father remained wholly just. That is, the reason Jesus suffered was not due to his sin or the Father's injustice. The reason of his dead laid, the reason for his death laid elsewhere, namely you. His motive to suffer was his love for you, to suffer for your sins, 
to satisfy the justice of God. Satan's use of the retribution principle is only two-dimensional, leading to error. But through Job and the cross of Christ, we see God's wisdom that enters the third and fourth dimension, which comforts us with the amazing purpose of Christ suffering for us, to save us to the uttermost. Indeed, Job, Jesus' suffering does not just make him our Savior, but also our Comforter. Like Job's friends, Jesus is a true friend to you, and his wise expertise in comfort far exceeds these three guys. Having been tempted and in pain in every way we suffer, Jesus is our compassionate high priest, able to administer his consoling grace to you. And sure, Jesus comforts us with his word, first and foremost, but he also does so with his silence. The wisdom of silent therapy should make us rethink Christ's silence towards us. In our grief, we often want a voice from heaven to make it all better. But Jesus knows better. By his spirit, Jesus is with you always, even or especially in silence. Jesus honors your pain with silence to let you know that he's listening to you. And his listening is eloquent. He lets us pray. And we have the confidence he's hearing. Let us then thank Jesus that he died for us. May we praise him for his sweet word, the good news of the resurrection, our only hope amid pain and suffering. And may we learn how to appreciate silent compassion and sympathy of our Savior to be with us and to listen to us so that we might bless his name and when we receive good from his hand and so that we might bless his name when we receive evil as well. In this way, whether he gives or takes, let us bless the name of the Lord, for we are hidden in the name of Christ.